It's good to be with you today. We're continuing a series that we've called Covenant and Kingdom. And um, it really is a close look at what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. Then a relationship that also brings responsibilities that God gives us as his children, as citizens of his kingdom, to be his hands and his feet, his mouthpiece, his light in a lost and dying world. And so it's been fun to, to, um, to unpack this series. It's also been fun to visit some of the Old Testament characters and see from their lives uh, and the relevance of their lives just how God uses them and spoke through them and worked through them in ways that were relevant then that are still relevant now. And so we're going to continue um, with, with our series, Covenant and Kingdom, and I've titled this message, A Taste of Redemption. A Taste of Redemption. And guys, I do feel like I'm a little hot. You know me, I'm subject to just start screaming. I don't want to blow everybody's ears out. So if you'll just turn me down a bit, I'd appreciate it. There you go. Maybe a little higher. Today we're going to take a look at the story that has a great storyline. It reads somewhat like a four-part drama. It's awesome. In this drama, scene one begins with the story of an Israelite man named Elimelech who lives in the land of Bethlehem of Judah. And uh, because of Israel's history of disobedience and sin, his country had fallen to an extreme famine as a result of God's, God levying a punishment on his children. And so now this famine had engulfed his native land. So he makes the decision to leave his native land, his land of origin, the town of Bethlehem, which, by the way, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. He, he makes the decision to leave Bethlehem to travel to a foreign country, the land of Moab. And he does that with hopes of finding food and, and shelter and, and provision for both he his wife, and his two boys. Elimelech's decision to move to Moab really adds to this, to this drama for several reasons. Let me give you two. First, in the old days, the people of Moab had been hostile towards the children of Israel as they were making their journey to Canaan. And God remembered that. Second, the, the women of Moab were also blamed for seducing the Israelite men and men and leading them away from their allegiance to God and to serving false idols, the, the, the Baal gods, listed in Numbers 21 or 25, verses 1 through 3. And as a result, what happened was the Israelite men were banned from marrying Moabite women for 10 generations. So, with that in mind, for, for scene one, I want you to join me in the book of Ruth, chapter one. We're going to take a look at the life of Ruth, chapter one. A little side journey. The book of Ruth is the only book in the Old Testament that's, that's not named after an Israelite. It's named after a non-Israelite, Ruth. She's a, she's a Moabite or Moabitess. 
The book of Ruth comes right on the heels of, of the book of Judges. And Judges was written in a time where, um, where the, the, the whole land was in turmoil and chaos and peril. It's full of conflict and confrontation and death. And this book was written during that time. As a matter of fact, I think that the last verse in, in the book of, of, of Judges really provides an excellent backdrop for us to begin this book of Ruth, where it says in Judges 21 and 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Tumultuous time. Yet nestled between this book of the Judges and, and, the, and the book of 1 Samuel, the prophet, is this incredible story of love and kindness and covenant connection and redemption. And so the scene, the first scene of this story begins in chapter one. It's a scene or a tale that, be, that really boils down to three journeys. So I call it the tale of three journeys. Let's pick it up in Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let me stop for a second. How many brought your Bibles with you today? Excellent. I'm reading out of the ESV version. Yours might read a little different. Let's continue. The name of the man was Elimelech and his sons, I mean, his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Maklon and Kilion. That's how that's pronounced. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite women. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Maklon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her sons, her two sons, and her husband. So let me summarize. Naomi's husband is dead. The two heirs of her husband's inheritance and legacy are also dead. And now this, this woman, this, is, this, this Israelite woman that journeys over to the land of Moab with her husband is in a foreign country alone with no one to provide for her and no one to protect her. And she, during this course of time, had been bought to absolutely nothing. So she gets up one morning and she decides, I'm going to go back to my native land of Judah because she's heard that God now has, has found favor on the land. He's lifted the famine off the land. He's provided the land with food. And so she begins her journey back to Bethlehem. In the process of the journey, probably really early on, Naomi recognizes that her two daughter-in-laws are foreigners. And when they get to the land of Bethlehem, they will be foreign women in a foreign, dangerous land. And so she tries to persuade them to go back to their families and hopefully there find a husband that will cover them and protect them. Oprah, Oprah, I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> I, I just knew it. 
Orpah agrees. But Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. And in doing so, she makes this this incredible statement that we find recorded in verse 16 of chapter 1. Drop down to it, and here's what Ruth says. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Here's what's happened. Ruth has made the decision to leave her former life behind and to find a new identity in a a covenant relationship with Naomi and Naomi's God. Let me tell you, that selfless act of obedience and love by Ruth towards Naomi did not go unnoticed by God. So, Limelech, Naomi's husband, leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, journeys down to Moab to find food. And then some 10 years later, now Naomi and Ruth are on their way back to to Bethlehem because God has provided in that land. Now, the Bible says that the arrival of of Naomi and Ruth um, causes an incredible commotion in the town. The Bible says the whole city was stirred. And I believe what happened is this, is that as a result of all the duress that that Naomi had been under over those last 10 years, she looked really, really haggard, really warm out. And the women in the community, they, they said this, they said, is this really Naomi? Is this really the woman that that left us 10 years ago? Look at what Naomi replies. She says, do not call me Naomi. The name means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. I had everything that I needed, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi. This Israelite woman has questions for God. Remember, she's back with her people now. When she left there, obviously, she's a woman of means. Now she comes back, she has no sons. She has no husband. Life has beat her up. And she's hopeless. She's got questions. I don't know about you, man, but I tell you what, this week my wife and I have been reflecting on the journey we've been on, and I'll tell you, there are times when we're walking through life where we're like, God, where in the world are you? Am I the only one that feels that way? Can any of you identify with that? God, if you are so good, why this? Why would you allow this to happen to me? 
But let me tell you something, as long as God is in control and he is in control, family, as long as we have breath in our body, we need to understand and come to grips that what we're faced with right now, this problem that we're faced with, these things that we're faced with, our God, our Father is bigger than our problems. He's bigger than the life's challenges that we can see, and he's greater And if there's anything that I've learned from studying these Old Testament examples, it's this, that we never really see the big picture. We don't. God gives us glimpses. And it's because we don't see the big picture, I believe, that Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 5. And he says, listen, when you're suffering, rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that that suffering produces endurance. And the endurance that, you, that, that will come out of that produces character and character, hope. And it's through this hope that God spreads abroad the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we grow deeper in relationship with him because the Holy Spirit is at work in us through our suffering and through our trials. What are you wrestling with today? What are you wrestling with today that seems much bigger than you, seems hopeless? Well, it seems that at the the end of scene one, everything seems really hopeless. But I want to draw your attention to, to the last sentence in chapter one. And it says this, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let me tell you something. When things seem the worst, God always provides a ray of hope. He always does. And so we begin scene two with a, with a ray of hope. And scene two actually introduces this prominent figure, a member of the Bethlehem community, a man named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi. And, and, and it, scene two also begins with what I believe is Naomi and Ruth sitting at the breakfast table having a heated debate over whether or not Ruth should go out into the fields and glean. Remember, they come to Bethlehem with absolutely nothing. And so they agree that Ruth should go to the fields and glean. But when Ruth goes to the field to glean, there's some things that take place. And I want to stop her and tell you what it means, what gleaning is all about. See, see, in the Old Testament, what happens is, 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 is God had given a, an edict to the children of Israel that when you, when you gather your harvest, that you pass through the harvest only one time because I want you to leave enough for the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. And then God goes on to say, he says, I want you to glean the middle of the field and leave the edges clear. Don't even glean the edges. Leave those edges for the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. Ruth the Moabite is a widow. 
And so she qualifies for both. Now, I got to tell you, I read this story many, many times. And at first glance, when you look at this story, you think that, that, that Ruth and, 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 and Naomi are sitting at the table and they're setting Boaz up, right? You know, they're conspiring, you know, uh, to, to, to get Ruth in Boaz's face and, and, and so he can recognize her. But I tell you, that's not the case. I don't think anything's happening on the sly here. I think God is at work. And so remember, these are dangerous times, and these fields are really, really dangerous. Remember the verse I read to you back in Judges where it says that in these times there was no king, and so everybody did what was right in their own eyes? This was a dangerous, dangerous place. It was dangerous for the children of Israel, and it was especially dangerous for a foreigner. So the Bible says what happens is Ruth goes down to the field and she's gleaning. And she happens to start to glean into, in another part of the, of the field that now belongs to Boaz. And so she, she makes her way to another part of the field that she's not supposed to be in. And the foreman of the field confronts her. She explains her story to him. And he allows her to glean the harvest, God's commandment. A little later on in the story, what happens is Boaz comes down from Bethlehem. And I'm amazed at, at, at this man because obviously from the response that he gets in the word of God, he is a good man. His workers love him. And they, as they see him, they greet him with this, this tremendous blessing. And in return, Boaz blesses them. And then he looks over and he sees this dark-skinned woman working in his fields. Not uncommon, but he'd never seen her before. And so he asks his foreman, he says, who is this woman? And his foreman says, this is Ruth, the Moabitess that came from Moab with Naomi. She's here and she's working in your fields. Hmm. So here's what happens. Boaz turns, he goes over to Ruth, and he tells her four things. He says, listen, sweetheart, it's dangerous out here. I only want you to glean in my fields and no other. And I don't want you to get separated from the, from the other women. You make sure you keep them in eye's view. He says, and I've told the young men not to touch you. In other words, don't harass you. Don't strike you. Don't abuse you in any way, either physically or sexually. And then this is the one. He says, and if you get thirsty, I want you to drink from the water that's been drawn by the young men. That was a sign of favor. Because in, in the Old Testament, what would happen is that the women and the foreigners, the slaves would draw the water for the young men to take and give to those that were in the field. And Boaz says, no, I don't want you to go thirsty. I want you to drink from the water that's already been drawn. This is a godly man. No other intentions but to be a good, kind man. And from the time Boaz opens his mouth, his tone of voice exudes compassion and kindness and provision towards Ruth. And Ruth is so taken back by the kindness of Boaz that she responds this way. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 10. 
So she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, as you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And look at Boaz's response to her, verse 11. But Boaz answered, All that, I've, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother in your native land to come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Here's what I think. There's no doubt in my mind that the buzz that the city was in had reached the ears of Boaz, especially the buzz that was surrounding the covenant that, that Ruth had made with Naomi. Boaz treats her with kindness. Bible says later on that evening they, they share a meal together. And afterwards, Boaz tells the men in the field to leave some stocks behind, leave them full so that Ruth can glean in the field. And what she collects is an ephah, a grain, which is about 30 pounds of grain, enough to feed her and Ruth for 10 days. Now watch this now. Ruth gets home. Naomi sees all this grain, and she inquires, man, where in the world, how in the world, where did all this provision come from? And Ruth says, I was out working today, gleaning in the field, and I happened to slip into another man's field. His name was Boaz, and he showed me kindness. And then how Naomi responds gives us a sense that maybe for the first time in, in 10 years, she is feeling a sense of hope, a sense of relief. And she tells Ruth, Boaz is a redeemer. Boaz is a relative. He's a kinsman redeemer. Now let me explain to you what that is. In Israelite custom, the closest relative was considered next to kin would be responsible for ensuring two things in the family. First, that all the patriarchal land stayed in the family. And second, according to the law of Leverian marriage, where there was no brother to raise, uh, to, to have children, or where there was no brother um, to raise the children in the name of the deceased, the kinsman redeemer then would come and he would take the responsibility to marry this childless widow and to raise up her children or their children on behalf of the dead husband in the dead husband's name. And so these two responsibilities fell on the shoulders of, of the kinsman redeemer. However, the responsibility to initiate redemption fell on the shoulders of the widow of the deceased. And so here's what happens. In compliance to, to, to the Old Testament laws, Ruth initiates the action with Boaz only to find out that he's not the next of kin. He wants to redeem her, but he's not the next of kin. And so it presents what I consider and call scene three a very complex situation. 
So now if you fast forward a little bit, drop down to chapter 3, you find Naomi under, or Ruth under the instruction of Naomi goes down to the threshing floor where, where all the harvesters are sleeping. Boaz is there. And the Bible says she gently uncovers Boaz's feet. She lays down by his feet until he wakes up. So now let's pick it up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 8. And at midnight, the man was startled. He turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now I tell you what, I probably would be startled too if I went to bed and woke up and there was a strange woman laying at my feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, but yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain here tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, his covenant now, I will redeem you. So lie down here until the morning. And here's the thing. Boaz is so moved by Ruth and her unselfishness, so moved by her desire to preserve her lineage, the, the lineage of her husband, by pursuing a kinsman redeemer instead of seeking the security of a younger man, a more desirable man to come rescue her and provide her security. He's so moved by that that he says, if this man won't redeem you, I will. But the problem is there is a kinsman redeemer closer than Boaz. And he gets the first opportunity to look after Ruth and Naomi. Enter scene four. So the following morning, Boaz goes down to the gate. He sees the other redeemer, pulls him aside. Hey, man, come here. I want to talk to you. Sits him down, looks out there. He finds 10 elders, tells the elders, hey, Come here, I want to conduct some business. Why don't you sit down? And so, so he sits the elders down along with the men together, and he tells the next kin that's in line to buy a Limelech's field, he says, listen, the land's available to you if you want to own it. And the guy says, yeah, I'll take it. But then he tells him the land comes with a price, though, man. It comes with a, with a widow, and it'd be your responsibility now if you take this land and you take her to bear the children of her dead husband in her husband's name. Hmm. He says, no, man, that's a little bit too much for me. So he declines. And it opens the door for Boaz to become the kinsman redeemer. And he purchases the field and he marries Ruth. And that's what he becomes. So, what does this story have to do with covenant and kingdom? Everything. Everything. In this story, we see both covenant relationship and kingdom promise. How? First, 
We see this young Moabite widow who, because of her selfless devotion and covenant loyalty to her mother-in-law and to, and to her mother-in-law's God, Naomi's God, she opens the door for the Moabite people who had previously been set on the side by God. She opens the door now for the entire land of Moab to come into covenant relationship with the Lord, God's eternal provision. Second, she not only gains a husband and a child, she earns a place in Jewish history. See, Boaz and Ruth have a son. They name his son, their son, Obed. Obed will be the father of Jesse, who in turn will be the father of the great King David. And so because of her faithfulness to this covenant promises she made with, with, with Naomi, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David, the ancestor through which Jesus Christ, our Savior, would come. Hmm. So what are the practical lessons that we can learn from this story that we can take away today? Here's the first one. When you commit to something, follow through with it. That sounds pretty practical, doesn't it? Listen, the God that we serve, family, is always watching us. He watches and listens to every word that we utter. But let's watch this now. There are others that are watching us too. There are others that are watching our lives, and we simply can never know the impact that we can have on a person's life when we do what we say or we don't. So follow through when you commit to something. The second is this. No person is so far outside the reach of God's grace that he or she cannot be saved. No one. Redemption is available to every single person, no matter what you've gone through or no matter what you're going through right now. No matter what you've done or what you are doing right now, what you have been involved with or what you're involved with right now, God's arm can reach out and grab you and rescue you. It is not too late. The third practical lesson we can learn is that God is always speaking. And, and he provides providentially and guides providentially those who are willing to obey him and at the same time, kingdom responsibility now, serve others. And I'll say this, in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, there are no small decisions, no small decisions. In fact, every decision that we make as we're following Jesus Christ, under his guidance and under his authority, pulls us deeper into covenant relationship and kingdom purpose. Fourth thing we can learn is what was true in the time of Ruth is also true for us today. She lived in a time of crisis. When that book was wrote, it was, it was chaos. Today we live in a time of national and international and worldwide crisis. Perplexities everywhere, moral decay, just like in the time of Ruth, all around us, wars, rumors of wars. We're living it now. And yet God continues to seek. He continues to save the lost. 
He's still seeking those who will come and lay at his feet and receive the redemption that only he can give. Four very practical lessons. Lee, why don't you bring your team up? I want to close with this. If the God we serve is truly God of all, then why do we try to take matters into our own hands as if we are the sum total of all knowledge? If the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then why don't we take the practical lessons that we learn from those Old Testament characters that we're studying and apply the lessons today? Our Father who loves us is well out in front of us. And he's made every single provision that we need, no matter what we find ourselves in. He is provided. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it's verse 13, he says, there is no test or temptation or trial that has come to us that has not already been common to all mankind. He said, but God, who is faithful, will not allow us to go through things that we are not able to bear, but will with the test and the trial Make a way of escape for us that we may be able to bear it. God did it for Ruth and Naomi. The same God will do it for us. When we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, he becomes our kinsman redeemer. Not only redeeming our soul from destruction, but giving us a brand new life in a different kingdom with a different set of rules, with a father who loves us and happens to be omnipotent. There is nothing that you are carrying that God doesn't want you to lay at his feet. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we know from, from the life of Ruth that we just took a, took a look at that just like you were out in front of her making provision, just as you were out in front of your people preparing a way through which you, Lord Jesus, would come, you want us to apply that truth to our lives, each one of us, right where we are, with the things that we're going through. Give us the courage, Lord, to surrender and lay all these things at your feet and quit struggling with the things that you want to handle for us and show us 
that you're there to walk with us every step of the way. I pray these things in the holy, mighty, matchless name of Jesus. And those who agree with that prayer said, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet?